Well, we're at that point in our worship service where we take our Bibles and together <clears throat> rally around the truth. We're so very excited to be able to look at our passage this morning, and I have been waiting uh, a few weeks now for us to get to this point in Hebrews 11. We're more than halfway through this chapter, and we come to a very important part. And I had uh, Mike read from Philippians and from Paul's testimony about how he actually lives. You hear how he lives, and you cannot help but but see this man as being a, a true champion for the faith. And when you see about how fearless he is and how he just presses on through through all that stands in his way so that he could testify to Christ before the world. We marvel, but we see that the, that the reason he does is because he forgets what lies behind and he pushes forward, strives for the goal, he says, of the upward call of God. And then he says that we all need to think this way. And I think that really sums up what I want to say today very beautifully. I'm going to say it in different words than the Apostle. So find your way to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to uh, examine or begin a section that starts in verse 23 and goes right straight to verse 29. But we're looking at only one verse this morning, and that's verse 23. This section in Hebrews where the writer addresses the life of Moses, including even his parents, and shows us how they persevered through difficult times by faith. Now, the entire chapter, of course, is about how to live by faith, obviously, but the thrust of this section on Moses is how to live by faith through adversity. Now, Abel and Enoch are mentioned without adversity. Abraham exercised faith in unbeatable odds, his barren wife and his old age and also severely tested, but by a command of God. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they're examples of how to face death triumphantly, as we saw, by faith, which is a reality for every one of us. But Moses and his parents persevered, pushed through, and overcame extremely difficult times in their lives, even life-or-death moments. Trials are perhaps the most common kind of scenario for God's people. All of us certainly can relate to them. Life is filled with trials. They're like bills. They keep coming. Some may be only of nuisance status, while others are heavy and taxing. I'm talking about trials now, not bills. But they, they all come with some regularity that makes it seem at times that life is well, not so wonderful, and actually even hard and cruel. Just as you manage to get through one trial, another one is there waiting for you. They come in all shapes and sizes, but they come nevertheless. It, it goes without saying that trials are not a happy time for people, stirring up feelings that range from mild aggravation to anger to outrage to depression and even hopelessness. But if you're a Christian you have a very different outlook on trials. At least you should. And if you don't, my prayer is that you will after we're done. Now, James tells us that they are actually times to rejoice. If you can believe it, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, he says. Now, why would he say that? 
Well, it's not because we love to be put out or feel the pressure of life. No, certainly not that. It's because of what these difficult times do for us overall. James continues, the testing of your faith produces endurance and let the endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's more, the New Testament tells us trials come to us by the hand of a good sovereign. Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10.13 is that God tailor-makes these trials specifically for us. Ones that he promised are ordinary and manageable. Listen, no trial has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not let you be tried beyond what you are able to handle. And with these trials, of course, comes God's promise that they will end. And if not in this life, then certainly in death they will be over. And that helps us to endure them. According to Romans 8, 28 and 29, God brings these upon us for our good, to make us more like Christ. Now in Hebrews 11, verse 23, the writer adds to our understanding of how to deal with trial, explaining that we can endure them and push through them obediently. Listen, if our focus is on what God is doing, or going to do rather, for us in the future. And not just in the near future with the outcome of the trial itself, but especially the fulfillment of his covenant promises of future blessing at the end of our lives. What awaits us, our great inheritance, heaven, that better country, and all the joy and blessings that come with it is the key to successful Christian perseverance. It's only when you lose sight of the end game and focus too much on the trial itself that you kill the forward motion of godliness. You magnify the trial to the point where it becomes your whole life, and you, you cannot see anything beyond it. No, nothing in sight, no end in sight. It's, it's a perfect example of the proverbial missing the forest for the trees. You become so absorbed in the one tree right there, it's, it's in its terrible effects that you lose sight of the grander scheme of the forest. But God has ordained our lot, hasn't he? Our forest, every part of it. And while the mixture of those parts is different for each of us, every Christian's lot dead ends at glory. It winds us up in the better country. Whatever God does to each of us through circumstances and trials to get us from point A to point B, he'll do. We need to be confident that his mixture of tragedies and triumphs for us is what he has deemed necessary to ready us for heaven. So when you see a trial in that light, well, you approach it in, in very, a very, di- very differently than you, than you would had you no certainty of heaven. First century Jewish Christians, as you know, had been drifting away from sound doctrine. They were not facing their trials triumphantly by faith in a better country, seeing seeing them as expressions of God's mercy to condition our faith. Oh no, they weren't. Remember, they were infants in their faith, right? So, So they had no proper doctrine of trials to live by. They eventually became fearful and 
fearful of what their Christian walk might even attract. And rather than plow through trials obediently and leave the consequences up to God, they started shrinking back. They shied away from a robust Christian walk and, and even compromised the word. All in hopes of alleviating the pressures of their trials, which in their case was persecution for their faith. Beloved, God doesn't want us wasting our time and effort on trying to get rid of trials in our lives. After all, he's the one that brought them to us in the first place, right? No, he wants us to persevere obediently through trial. And to do that, we need at the very least, according to Hebrews 11, an eternal perspective on things. We need to see this trial as one of God's means to ready us for that place that Jesus is preparing for us even now. In our text this morning, we meet Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, two young adults faced with the trial of their lives. And it is their, life, their faith in God's promise of future blessing that enables them to persevere obediently through it all. And as a result, the writer says they were not afraid of what confronted them. I, I might want to highlight, I want to pause for a moment, just highlight that little reference to fear. Because the writer does. And I want us to understand what it means in this section on Moses that runs from verses 23 to, to 29. You will, you will see through the weeks how faith perseveres through trial and keeps us from producing some pretty bad fruit. Each instance in this section shows different bad fruit that we can avoid by faith. And in verse 23, this young couple's faith perseveres through trial and keeps them from the fear of man. That is a very bad fruit, the fear of man. Fear is something that we all know well. We all know well. We've all been afraid at various points in our lives. And Americans, especially now, have cause to fear in light of the pandemic, in light of what's going on, in light of what we know to be experimental vaccines that are actually killing people, and the talk of mandating them in every aspect of society. We even heard this today from some of you. People who have a, a constitutional right to refuse them are discriminated against and seriously wonder if they will even be out of a job soon. Parents continue to protest against making it mandatory for public school kids who are unlikely to get sick to begin with. Then there is the toxic critical race theory and the wokeism that is fast becoming part of the public school curriculum and teaching kids how to be racist. Americans have a lot of reasons to be afraid. There are certainly trying times in which we live, but to buck against the system winds you up jobless, canceled, as it were, and in some instances, incarcerated. Many are fearful, and many Christians among them are fearful. And what you might not know is that the Bible identifies for us what are legitimate and what are illegitimate fears. That's very important to know. In Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, for example, the Apostle Paul 
tells us to fear government if we should disobey it and do something sinful and criminal. Now, this is not an instance of committing civil disobedience for righteousness' sake, but rather disobeying God and government. And in that case, Paul says, be afraid. For rulers are not a cause to fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good. But if you do what's evil, be afraid. For the rulers do not bear the sword for nothing. For if it is a servant of God and an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So this fear results from a sense of self-preservation that God built into our soul so that we don't put ourselves in harmful situations like this one. It's a legitimate one to have. You should be afraid if you live an ungodly life that actually breaks the law. You should be afraid of climbing into a lion's cage for a selfie. He might eat you. Or not getting too close to the edge of a cliff that's 2,000 foot elevation for fear of falling off. These are all good fears to have. So what is illegitimate fear? Well, it's fear that prevents us from obeying God, pure and simple. Many Christians in the late first century and in the early second refused to shrink back in their witness to Christ before the world. They refused. They were stalwarts, even against the threat of being thrown into a cage with a lion. But many Christians today shrink back. Oh, they shrink back from something as simple as giving God praise publicly in the assembly because they have a fear of speaking before a crowd. So they would rather protect themselves from a potentially embarrassing situation and rob God of his praise and the body of its blessing. Are you feeling convicted? Fear of man is one of a number of illegitimate fears. Apostle Peter was motivated by fear of man on a few occasions. One led to denying the Lord, you remember. Another one, years later, when he was an established apostle and had joined Paul in Galatia to fellowship with the Gentiles. Everything was going well until Jewish Christians from the Jerusalem church came to check up on them. And then Peter stopped fellowshipping with the Gentiles and started pointing the finger at them, urging them to live by the law. Even Barnabas followed Peter's cue. Listen to Galatians 2.12. For prior to coming of some men from James, Peter used to eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision. We know what happened next. Paul confronted them to their face and condemned their hypocrisy publicly. Illegitimate fear. It's fear that keeps us from pleasing Christ. It's sinful and it can impact us in very powerful ways. It can paralyze us, send us running in an ungodly direction, cause us to shrink back from obeying the Lord, interrupt our sound biblical reasoning, drive us to sinful worry and live by speculation. Illegitimate fear stops us dead in our godly tracks, and it derails us, redirects our attention away from God's promises of future blessing and onto the present object of our fear. At this point, we lose sight of our goal, our aim, our end game, and we languish in this wretched 
situation, fully convinced that we are completely hopeless. The entire process, by the way, of going from full marathon run toward the kingdom to dead in the water. It's a very deceptive progression. Let me just speak to it very briefly. Here's how it happens. We respond, to, we respond sinfully to a particular situation, a trial, out of fear. Fear that it, of, of what might happen, consequences. And, and, and we set ourselves up to mishandle whatever consequences do follow. And then we're guilty. We feel convicted. And the sin of mishandling those consequences brings more trial upon us. We complicate, compound the problem. Feeling guilty, feeling defeated, we mishandle those trials. And then more bad consequences come. And on and on it goes. With each sinful mishandling of a trial, we spiral downward to despair and also put put off more and more of God's God-given responsibilities because we, we no longer feel like being responsible. And once we reach the bottom of the spiral, that depressive vortex, there is nothing left for us to do but to throw up our hands in the air in utter hopelessness. That is a terrible place for God's champions to be. And we don't belong there, beloved. That's why we need to hear from Hebrews 11.23 and see how Moses' parents' faith in a better country kept them from paralyzing fear and defeat. I'm very excited to share this passage with you. Let me, let me lay out the context for you. Amram and Jochebed, they were confronted with an option. They faced that very familiar fork in the road of life that we all face from time to time. One way is the way less traveled by, if I can borrow words from Robert Frost. It's the righteous way. It's the godly way. The other way is the ungodly way. And for this couple, they had a choice to make. Either they take God's way and commit civil disobedience in Egypt and face possible execution for it, or they take the sinful way out and obey Pharaoh's edict to surrender their son Moses to be destroyed. How's that for trial? How did it get this bad? Well, that's a good question. We need to look at Exodus 1 for the answers. I'll just give you a summary of that chapter. About 350 years after Joseph died, a new administration took over in Egypt, one that didn't understand the wonderful relationship that Egypt had with Israel. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 says, The sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Well, that's a good thing. And Egypt thought so as well. Now, this new administration, however, rose up, didn't know Joseph. It wasn't like the one before. Oh, no, it was power-hungry, quite suspicious of anyone that, that might be a threat to its status. So it didn't honor this long, wonderful history with the Jews, but rather discriminated against them. Listen to verses 8 to 10. Now a new king rose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are, 
are too many and, and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply, and in event of war, they will also join those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. Situation for Israel changed drastically at this point. The new administration forced the Jews into slave labor. We continue reading in verse 11. So they appointed taskmasters over over them to oppress them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh, they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses, using violence to compel the sons of Israel to labor and made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field and and, and their labors which they violently had uh, had them perform as slaves. Now, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, this new administration imposed a population control measure on them and expected the Jews to comply. Pharaoh instructed all the Hebrew midwives in verse 16, listen, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and you see them upon the birthing stool, if it's a son, then you need to put him to death. If it's a daughter, then you can let her live. Well, that didn't work thanks to the faith of the Hebrew midwives, so Pharaoh's command changed. He said, every Hebrew son who's born, you are to throw into the Nile. This is a command that went out to his own people. But every daughter you are to keep alive. Now, it was in this very oppressive context of discrimination and slavery and genocide that Amram and Jochebed, two young adults from the tribe of Levi, married and gave birth to baby Moses. Not a good time to be a Hebrew, much less to have a kid. Their joys were overshadowed with the threat of execution, either for them or for their newborn. How do they deal with this terrifying trial? Well, the answer is in Hebrews 11.23. Let me read it for you. The writer says, By faith Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. I'm going to ask you to hold your place here and also Exodus 1 and Acts 7. We're going to do some, some research together. The writer introduces this section with the same refrain that he used to introduce all the others. By faith, he says, And since he defined faith for us back in verse 1 as the certainty of things hoped for and proof of things not seen, we are once again assured, as we were in the case of all the others up to this point, that this young Hebrew couple had a firm hope in the coming of God's kingdom and the fulfillment of his covenant promises to their forefathers. It was a firm hope. That hope was a certainty, a guarantee for them. They longed for it. And as we can see here, they centered their lives on it. They really, that really shouldn't surprise us. They were well-grounded in the faith. I say that for three reasons. I want you to consider this with me before I bring the application. All right, three reasons why I say that Amram and Jochebed were well-grounded in the faith and had this, this hope in God's promise for future blessing. Think through this with me. In the first place, they knew of the Abrahamic covenant with its promises. 
I think that's a safe assumption. They knew of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, all who lived several hundred years before their own generation by this time. They, all, they, they knew of the, the promises of God made to the patriarchs about bringing the Israelites or the Israelite clan down to Egypt to be oppressed for 400 years and then out again with a strong hand. They knew that. So that's in the first place. In the second place, they told Moses about God's future plan and that he was one of God's chosen people when he was in their care. I think that is a safe assumption too. How do we know this? Well, because of the information that the New Testament provides for us regarding Moses. In Acts 7, Stephen, just before he was executed, preaches this masterful sermon to his executioners, his fellow Israelites. And he effectively lays out what we call salvation history, how God is saving a people for himself. And in that sermon, he mentions Moses and fills out the story of Moses' childhood a bit more, telling us that Moses, what Moses was actually thinking. According to Stephen, after Moses left his parents' home, verses 22 and 23, Acts 7, he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was proficient in speaking and action, or word and action. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his countrymen, the sons of Israel. Well, Stephen highlights the incident where Moses saw one of his own countrymen cruelly mistreated by an Egyptian, and defended his countrymen by fatally striking the Egyptian. Moses had a kinship, you see, with his own people. As popular and as highly regarded by Egyptians as he was, his loyalty was to Israel. Make no mistake about that. He identified with them, as we'll see later on in our exposition of the other verses. For now, suffice it to say that Moses not only knew he was a Hebrew, he was zealous for his people. And Stephen's speech in Acts 7.25 shed some light on why that was. Stephen says that Moses, when Moses came to rescue, to the rescue of his fellow abused Israelite, thought that his brothers understood that God was granting them deliverance through him but they did not understand. What a statement. That's an astounding remark. Moses doesn't give us this insight about himself in the Exodus account, but Stephen does. And since both are scripture, we have a great case here where scripture interprets scripture. The Holy Spirit, who is the author of both texts, gives us a fuller understanding into what Moses believed about himself. And there could be no question then that because of his, his faithful way of his parents and how they catechized him, Moses not only understood salvation history, he not only believed the gospel as a true believer, not only longed for the coming of Christ, the Messiah, but he understood the covenant that God made with Israel. And he also knew that God promised to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage with a strong hand and that Moses might just be the one that God would use to do that. Now, finally, and in the third place, we might safely assume that Amram and Jochebed also believed 
that Moses was God's chosen deliverer to to Israel. Why do I say that? The next three texts that I that I or the, the, the three texts I've mentioned, we'll look at them shortly, Hebrews, Acts, and Exodus. When you take them together, they seem to argue for this. So the Septuagint version of Exodus 2, verse 2 says, when she, that's, Am, that's a Jacobin, when she saw Moses was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Hebrews 11.23 says essentially the same thing because he's quoting from the Septuagint. Moses was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. So far, so good. Now, the Greek term in both versions, the same Greek term, is translated beautiful, and it refers to Moses' appearance. He was strikingly fair as a child or as a baby. Now, (laughs) every couple thinks that their newborn is beautiful. Right? Oh, yeah. So it makes little sense that both texts would record this unless there was a fuller meaning to it. Stephen's comments in Acts 7 definitely suggest that there is. He tells us in verse 20, Acts 7, verse 20, that Moses was indeed beautiful, but to God. Hmm. The idea here is that or likely that God found Moses to be beautiful, a beautiful person inside as well as outside. In other words, Moses was a perfect physical specimen, yes. Perfect confirmation. Beautiful, radiant infant. But the qualities of his heart were also as beautiful in the sight of God. That is to say, righteous. Now, how can a baby's heart have righteous qualities? Well, not so much a baby as an individual. God looks at an individual, he sees his whole life. The point here is that God saw Moses for what he would become, a good servant, a godly servant. He would be a humble man, zealous for the Lord. Can we prove this? Well, the Holy Spirit left us his own editorial comments in Numbers 23, verse 3, I'm sorry, 12, verse 3, regarding Moses. It's a parenthetical thought that is important for the future readers of God's people to know, and it's this, Numbers 12, verse 3. Moses was very humble, more than any person who was on the face of the earth. How about that? Stephen may very well have meant with his reference to Moses being beautiful to God, that God had found the person Moses acceptable in his sight and had already chosen and consecrated him for a future ministry. We know he did that with Jeremiah and Isaiah. Moses' parents sensed this divine calling for baby Moses, perhaps when they noticed his comeliness, his beautiful appearance. They took it as a sign that he was no ordinary child and that God had plans for him. Their minds, of course, would have naturally gone right to the promise that God gave the patriarchs about delivering Israel out of Egypt after 400 years of occupation and slavery. It seems possible to Amram and Jochebed that God would do this through Moses. And if this is the case, Well, then we have a great example of how this couple lived by faith in the promise of God even for the near future. 
They did everything they could to preserve Moses alive, even at the expense of their own lives. They lived, they lived not in fear of Pharaoh's edict, but in eager expectation of God fulfilling his covenant promises, even the first stage of the promise, which was national deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Well, those are my three reasons why I believe that Amram and Jochebed were well-grounded in doctrine. But let's refocus our attention on Moses' faithful parents and ask another question. What was the object of their faith? Again, the writer's definition of faith at the outset of the chapter would assure us that they were longing for God's promise of future blessing. There's no question. They are in this line of champions of faith who long for the better country. Future blessing, in their case, would certainly have included God's delivering Israel from Egypt and bringing her to the promised land. Old Testament commentator Philip Hughes sees it this way. He says, quote, Certainly we may assume that Moses' God-fearing parents were driven by an inner conviction that their child had a role to play within the divine process, uh, purposes and that it was because they were sustained by this conviction that they were not afraid of the king's edict, end quote. And that's very true. <clears throat> But in a larger context of Hebrews 11, and given the obvious catechizing that took place from generation to generation, since the very beginning of the godly line of Abel, this young couple also hoped in a better country, a heavenly country, that which the promised land would symbolize. And it was that promise that drove them to obey God and commit without any fear whatsoever civil disobedience. They were prepared to suffer the consequences because they were counting on God's promises. And their faith was tested even more in the related basket in the river episode. Knowing that they couldn't conceal baby Moses any longer, they placed him in a watertight basket, set him adrift in the thick reeds, and had his older sister Miriam keep a watch on him. They trusted that God would preserve him. All right. That is our examination of Hebrews 11.23. With a little help from Exodus 1 and Stephen. What happens when we live by faith in the promises of God's future blessing in the midst of severe trial? What happens? Well, we persevere. We persevere obediently through them. That's what. And we are better for it, too. How are we better? Well, let me give you just two examples. Only two. I'll close with these. They come from our text really as charges, I think, to God's people. You can think of them that way. The writer wants you to know this, and he wants you to be about them. The first one is this. Number one, trust God's promise, promises to us of future blessing, both, both the immediate future and the end-time future, and press on to champion his cause of righteousness in our lives in the present. Press on to champion God's cause of righteousness in your life, even now, on the basis of his future promises, on the basis of what is to come. We find trials difficult because we often fear the outcome. We talked about that this morning in our Sunday school hour. 
we find, find that Christians, believe it or not, often fear the outcome even more when they discover how God would have them handle their present trial, believe it or not. And that's because they, they think that doing what God calls them to do in their particular situation would actually make things worse for them. As if to say, well, the outcome of the trial is hard enough for me. God's will for me in it would, would only compound the problem. But this isn't the, this isn't the Holy Spirit talking. This is not the Holy Spirit talking. It's a satanic lie, either directly from the evil one himself or something from our flesh that confronts us after marinating a while in our illegitimate fears. We can handle the trial in a godly way, in a way that pleases Christ, just by understanding the how and the why of trials. And I've, I've already mentioned at the outset of our time from 1 Corinthians 10.13 and Romans 8.28 and 29, but what allows us to handle them obediently in an aggressive manner, in a zealous way, with a posture that says, come what may, even the consequences, it makes no difference to me. I'm going to stay the course and obey the Lord And what makes that possible for us to have that kind of posture is the guarantee that we have a great inheritance in heaven waiting for us. You have to realize that redemption in Christ means at least two things. One is that the worst is over for us, right? So no one can ever do anything to you that's worse than what you originally deserved, which is hell. Jesus took your hell for you. It's gone. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus took your hell. No more is that an an option for you. It's gone. He saved you from the wrath of God. The other truth is that the best for you is yet to come. And it will come. No doubt about it. And if you keep your eye on that prize, you can maneuver obediently through anything with joy and courage. You know, Moses' destiny included a context that his parents could never have imagined. Think think about this. He honored their faith, God honored their faith, by preserving Moses, but in a way that was counter to their own thinking, and no doubt far exceeded their expectations. The events that ensued after Pharaoh's daughter pulled Moses from the river are remarkable. Jochebed would receive Moses back to nurse him for a time. We don't know how long that was. She certainly nursed him and then weaned him, but it is likely that he lived with them long enough for them to catechize him in the faith, in other words, a toddler. Then he would go away to boarding school to Egyptian's finest, be adopted into the royal family where he would be protected and enjoy royal status as well as the best education. How ironic is that? The very enemy that threatened the Israelite couple with the death of their son would be the very refuge that God established for him. 
And the very thing that Pharaoh sought to destroy would come under his care and tutelage and occupy a prominent place in his kingdom. Even in this does God make a mockery, a mockery of mighty Pharaoh. For his adopted son, Moses, would become his undoing and the undoing of his kingdom. So by obeying the Lord and persevering, or sorry, preserving Moses' life, at the risk of losing their own lives, Moses' parents found God's pleasure in their lives, God's plan for us in the future, the near future, but especially the end time future, is wonderful, beloved. More, better than you could even imagine. It has to be, if it is his will, it has to be the best. And you would ruin it if you could ever change it. Let's trust him for it and press on to champion his cause of righteousness in our lives. Now here's the second bit of application as we wind this down. The other charge from this text that we have only time for, this this one last part, let be a constant reminder to you. And it goes like this. God's ways are not our ways and that his ways are best and will bring us to the fulfilled promises of his future blessing. His will will actually usher us into the fulfillment of his promises. I mentioned that Moses was convinced that he would be God's deliverer, right? Now think through this one with me. I love love this. God God certainly worked with Moses. You You might wonder how this squares with the burning bush incident where Moses actually does all he can to shy away from this calling. Remember that in Exodus 3? All the excuses that he gave, incredible. Now that doesn't sound like he was anticipating this moment at all, does it? So how do we reconcile these two contexts, Stephen, what Stephen says about Moses and how he, he knew he was the deliverer on the one hand, and then Moses shying away from a calling in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. How do we reconcile, especially if the Bible doesn't contradict itself? Well, when Moses, when Moses thought that he was surely the one that God would use to deliver the nation, his circumstances were very different than they were at the burning bush. Then he was only 40 at the prime of his political career in Egypt. He might have thought that it it only makes sense that God would use someone such as he who was well-educated, a leader, had a dynamic personality. And that's, of course, the world's kind of leader, isn't it? But Moses would soon learn that God prefers to use those whom the world rejects as leadership material. I can see your way ahead of me. God's decree before time began that Moses would lose his authoritative position in Egypt, become a wanted man there, an outcast, a pariah, a fugitive of justice, and rejected by his own countrymen, eventually would flee Egypt for his life and live the next 40 years in obscurity in a land called Midian, where he became a lowly and humble shepherd. That's what God ordained before time began. 
Given all these terrible circumstances and Moses' shock at the burning bush incident where God would consider him for Israel's deliverer, it's safe to say that Moses had all but abandoned his belief that he was God's deliverer. You cannot possibly be serious, Lord. And that became cemented in his mind year after long year of his 40-year stint in the wilderness, which had to have seemed like a lifetime. It is for many people. But we're not surprised, are we, that God would call a rejected, fallen, unsuccessful, and all but forgotten Moses to deliver Israel, are we? <laughs> Listen again to Stephen's remark in Acts 7. This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him at the thorn bush. Stephen purposely contrasts Moses' rejected status with his new divine calling to rule and lead in order to show us that God does not work according to our ways, but his own, which are far above ours, so far above are his ways than ours that they are often seen or seem to us to be illogical, nonsensical, or weak, according to the world's understanding of weak. They are certainly past finding out, that's for sure. Moses, thinking that he might well be God's deliverer, was correct, but for the wrong reasons, which is why he abandoned the thought soon after after his descent into obscurity, what authority does he have now, now that he's, he has no more pull in Egypt, now that he's an outcast in Egypt, now that his own people have rejected him? But that's how the world talks. That's certainly how Satan talks. Last I checked, God needs no help. Certainly not the help of an Egyptian court insider. God will accomplish this great plan his own way in his own time, and he will ensure that he receives the glory. And that was to use a lowly shepherd, Moses himself, who had lost his status, lost his power, and was now public enemy number one in Egypt and estranged from his own people. What the world considers weak, God uses to shame the strong. Someone said that somewhere in the New Testament. God most certainly shamed Pharaoh. Beloved Christians today, like the first century Jewish Christians of the book of Hebrews, are drifting. We are in a season of apostasy and compromise. And they are drifting from sound doctrine, if they were ever acquainted with it in the first place. And because of that, they are ill-equipped and ill-prepared to face trial in a godly, aggressive manner. Like the first century Christians in our book, Christians today face the pressures from their culture to conform to ungodly standards that compromise churches have even adopted. We've mentioned critical race theory, the wokeism, all part of the fabric, not only of America, but now of American Christianity. That is, a cur- that is the current trial. And if one does not conform, then he or she stands to be canceled even by the church community because cancel culture is now part of the church culture. 
The right decision, of course, is to stand firmly against all that stuff. Refuse to be driven by the fear of man that leads to compromise for sake of fitting in, and practice sound doctrine no matter what. Live our faith aggressively. That will no doubt exacerbate many trials, but remember this. No trial can ever be as bad as an eternity in hell, right? Which we all deserve, and that is no longer a threat to those of us in Christ. All gone. Jesus made sure of that. That truth alone would make any trial of lesser severity than hell a walk in the park for us. It should. But there's more. Not only is the worst possible over for us, but the best possible is yet to come for us. With the worst over and the best guaranteed for us, what can possibly move us today? If that's your sentiment, then you know that God's ways, which are not our ways, are the best possible option for us in any situation. Because those ways will bring us to the fulfilled promises of his future blessings.